Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Jason Palmer. Jason holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of California, Irvine. He's currently a K-12 educator. His book, Forever Familias, is forthcoming from the University of Illinois Press. In his fascinating article, Tiny Papers, Peruvian Mormon Substances of Relatedness, discusses his own embeddedness in a Peruvian Mormon kinship system, showing how the intercultural systems relate to one another in practice and the lives of this extended family under the matriarch Jacoba. Jason, welcome. It's so nice to talk to you about your work. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this is an anthropological and ethnographic study of uh, a Peruvian Mormon familia system. Can you just tell us a little bit about what an anthropological or ethnographic project is for people who aren't familiar with that and sort of describe your, your research as you looked into this? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think a lot of people don't know what anthropology is, and especially in Mormon studies. I think anthropology is one of the least utilized disciplines. Yeah, there's a lot of historians and sociologists. Um, yeah, anthropology is, of course, the study of humans and broken down into four subfields, one of those being sociocultural anthropology, which is what I did when I uh, gathered the data for this for this specific article. And what that basically means is uh, just deeply hanging hanging out with people and getting to know them, uh, becoming part of their group uh, as much as possible, but also, um, you know, realizing that you're never really going to be part of their group. And so it's it's always, it's basically a study of, of that contradiction. There's a fundamental contradiction always at the base of it which is that you as the anthropologist are the instrument of data collection and therefore you're going to filter things through your own biases and things like that. And so if you're comparing it to astronomy, for example, where you're saying, you know, an astronomer would report their, you know, um, what kind of telescope they used, you know, what kind of drawbacks there were with it or whatever. And in my case, I am the instrument of data collection. And so I have to describe like what my, um, stake, like my history, you know, like how I was socialized growing up to see the world and then how I came to this community. And so, I mean, it's, it's just a very personal, uh, way that I came to it, which is, um, I, it's my own family, basically my in-laws and my religious community and so um when i went when i realized that i wanted to go back to school and get a phd in anthropology um i just stopped to consider hey you know what's what communities do i already have access to and uh, that's interesting and so what got me originally interested in peruvian mormonism is just um, watching how my spouse's family. So we met in um, in Utah at Weber State University. Nobody's heard of them except for Utahns. And uh, we, uh, um, so 
she had just recently immigrated from Peru a year prior to me meeting her, and she had already been um, baptized into the church, which this article kind of goes into. That same um, person who uh, who was evangelizing her own family members was involved in getting my wife's family into Mormonism, and so um, then watching her her family, you know, every just like seemed like every month, every, at least every year, more members of her family would would immigrate to Utah. You know, that's you know, sort of like family migration. That's that's how that happens. And then, you know, that's how I kind of justified this being an important project, which was like, why why are there so many Peruvians in Utah? Because it's if you look at the statistics, Utah, like all the other the six other highest concentrations of Peruvians are all Eastern Seaboard states, um, and then California, and then Utah. All of a sudden, is just. And it obviously has to do with, with Mormonism. And, um, so that was what got me into the project and then getting further into, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to do this actually? Like, what am I going to do? Um, uh, as far as, you know, what questions am I going to really get into? And I just kind of went with, uh, taking advantage of my own church membership. I joined uh, congregations, and so I figured, after doing some preliminary research and going to different places, I kind of wanted to compare two two congregations. One in Utah that was dominated by Peruvians, and so I had to find out which one that would be. And I I found one that was definitely dominated by Peruvians, and then another Mormon congregation in uh, in Peru um, that I chose. I chose uh, the city of Arequipa, Peru, because it had been recently selected as the site of a temple that I wanted to see, like how the material building of literal Zion kind of matched the figurative, and like how people were making themselves worthy in Peru, in Arequipa, of that temple, and from their perspective. And so, I joined, uh, ended up doing what we call our field work year so in my program which is at uc irvine we uh you take an entire year off and go um do your project and embed yourself basically in the community that you've chosen to study with um and so i chose uh those i chose to divide that year up six months in each place so six months in utah at the Spanish-speaking uh, congregation that I mentioned, at, and then six months in Arequipa, and I just well, I basically was just the most active Mormon you can imagine in those those two spaces, um, and that's something I kind of, um, yeah. And this are this article actually mentioned that I go that I become a temple worker, um, so I became a temple worker in the Ogden, Utah temple. Um, as part of this research and i would often be it was as as a as a member of the spanish-speaking congregation so i would go during the spanish-speaking uh sort of rituals at the temple and participate with um with a lot of different uh spanish speakers and other people and 
that's one of the experiences that I mentioned in the article about the the literal tiny papers that they give you yeah. in the temple. And and of course, all of this brings up a lot of issues of ethics and um, uh, a lot of sticky situations that there's really no good answer for um, how I feel about it. Um, yeah, it was, it was never a clear cut well, it, divide between what I'm doing as a scholar and what I'm doing as a seeker, you know, as someone who's also needing some spiritual uplifting, you know. It's such a curious mix of uh, th this kind of work, such a curious mix of sort of insider and outsider status and holding those two tensions simultaneously, hold, holding those intentions simultaneously. And, and I, I'm sure as other ethnographers that I've talked to and work with a sort of disorientation of like, wait, where are the boundaries and the lines between these two competing identities sometimes? And your own narration of that in this article, as you, as a member of this family, trying to describe what's happening um, here is uh, really raises a lot of interesting questions. You've already started to allude to some of the uh, uh, issues in terms of temple work that that you're kind of investigating here. But can you talk a little bit about what is one of the central questions or some of the central questions that this article is bringing out about relatedness, kinship, substances of relatedness? Can you kind of just define some of those terms and and what you what you ended up looking at here in the in the uh, uh, among your research subjects? Yeah, so what I wanted to do, uh, one of the, as I went through uh, my program, I, I ran into, I took a class on kinship, which is called kinship. And from, anth from an anthropological perspective, it it kind of, um, you know, it, anthropologists believe that, that such and th such a thing is a social construct. Like, for example, a lot of people like greater society is now coming to grips with the idea of gender being a, a social construct. And that can kind of blow your mind at the beginning of like, oh, what do you mean? It, I thought it was just biological, just like our reality, you know? And um, you realize, um, once you get more deeply into, more an, into anthropology, that really everything is a social construct, including kinship. And so you might that that's something that's kind of hard to to grapple with the idea that wait a minute you know um you're telling me that my own mother is is um that the fact that she's my mother is just a, a cultural construct it's not there's nothing real behind it nothing and yeah i mean like why do we why do we choose to to call the woman who whose womb we come out of <laughs> our mother, right? Like why not every culture, not every society does that actually. And that's something that I discovered in, in, um, in reading about Andean anthropology in Peru, you know, uh, there are societies in the Andes today where the, the mother child relationship has to be, is literally understood as being taught. You're, you have to, you have to teach your own mother to love you in certain societies. And so those kind of things, just questioning that even something as unquestioned as kinship as what makes me think I'm related to the people I'm related to, um, that, um, if even that is a social construct, then, you know, what else is? And of course the, 
the fundamental um in, you know question there is that um with the LDS church being so focused on kinship right i mean it's almost like the crux of the church is is family um then what happens when you have two different societies like the society that I grew up in, which I call Anglo-Mormonism, um, and the society that my spouse grew up in, which I call Peruvian Mormonism, um, both using the same word, this, I mean a similar word, a cognate family and familia, but um, meaning having a very different meaning behind it. And on top of that, you have the power dynamic where Peruvian Mormonism isn't isn't the Mormonism that gets to make the rules, right? And so um, that led me to um, realize a lot of things, for example, about about the rules of the church, about the rules of the temple, you know, um, which are that I reiterate this numerous times in the a couple times in the article, which is that in the temple you can only be sealed you can only like legitimate your relationship to your spouse uh, like or to your children and that's all <laughs> and that's um that's that seems normal to people who really only have those relationships you know around them people who live in nuclear families um like the people who made those rules probably do but uh, for most of the people in the world that's ridiculously limiting it's 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 so um close-minded and um just scarcity is it it's it's like like what about my cousins what about you know what about my daughter for example you can't you, you have to be married it's not that the parents can get sealed to the children it's that the children need to be sealed to the couple and so so many of my study participants in peru were single mothers who could not be sealed to their own children just because they didn't have a husband. And so that um, that's kind of what I wanted to do with this article is to get people to mostly, you know, readers who are themselves Anglo-Mormons um, to kind of question, you know, question that where do these temple rules come from and um, are they really um, making the uh whole human family one great whole you know or are we kind of individuating and and cutting things up needlessly and, so, yeah just uh yeah that's kind of like i'm gonna get enough there but yeah yeah so, so we have so, so you describe you know sort of white north american uh uh modes of kinship mormon white north american modes of kinship Peruvian modes of kinship and Peruvian Mormon modes of kinship. Where are some of the overlaps and points of disjuncture between some of those uh, uh, models and systems that, that came up sort of in, in practice? You mentioned single mothers as one uh, there, but but what are other places where you were kind of noticing some places where there were tensions and other places where they actually were merging together in, in um, cooperative ways? Um, yeah, I would say that one of the commonalities is definitely just the importance of marriage in general. I would say that's even um, like a more ancestral uh, understanding among some 
uh, some communities in the Andes, which, uh, for example, there's a lot of in ancient Andean art. I mean, by the Andes, I mean the the mountain range in South America. That's you know that that was part of the Inca Empire, ranging from Colombia to Chile, you know, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and those there's there's uh, basically symbology similar to the yin and the yang sort of symbology where uh, maleness and femaleness complement each other and in fact need to be um, there needs to be that unity and in fact in a lot of languages in the Andes the word marriage means the making of a person so you're not really a person until you're married um, but so there, there that's where there's the overlap um, where the the just the ultimate importance of marriage right and so the where there's um where it splits up is is a lot about um communalism versus individuality versus individualism right and so it if there's in like in those societies in the Andes where the making of a person means the word marriage um there's not really a sense that like if i'm an individual person who never gets married it's no big deal because marriage is happening in my community it's not going to affect my eternal salvation right because we have enough marriage happening around me that my role met, might not be to get married right it, whereas it um you know in a lot of the in the peruvian congregations that i was part of you know there's there's a huge amount of pressure. And so I, I just, I spent a lot of time actually at single adults events and, um, um, what in, it, um, in, in Peru, you know, in, in, in Utah or in the intermountain West, they, there's enough population to have actual war. The entire congregation is just single adults, right? Well, they don't really have that in Peru, but they know about it. And so they kind of divide it up into classes. There's organizations. And I followed a lot of those organizations and they, they would almost always, you know, um, resent, they resent the pressure that they give themselves to get married. And it's, it's almost kind of funny at, at times. And they would even talk about it and joke about it a lot. You know, they have a lot of words that they like, uh, salt in Peru, they'll say solterazo, which means like extremely single. Um, and the, the age groups, uh, uh, the age cutoffs, you know, like age 18 to 30 to 30 is like, is, um, is supposed to be young, young single adults versus, um, you know, just, just plain single adults after 31 and up. And so they, they actually consider themselves youth like when they talk about themselves they're not adults until they're married you know the way they talk about it they're also not really a member of a family until they're married and so if they have to have a family night a family home evening they've got to join up with their um young single adults group which in some cases since they don't have enough population to uh to do the age cutoffs like they do in utah There'll be like 68 year old adults who happen to be single and calling themselves youth. Like they'll say, we, we as youth, you know, because we're not married yet. And they, yeah, it's just, uh, 
and that that way um that's something that they kind of uh i guess they you know just belittle themselves i guess about that so going to those meetings i would often compare them to um because it's in spanish it's called as so it's as adult adultos solteros and i would it almost felt like an, an alcoholics anonymous meeting so an aa meeting it was like hi my name's jason and that i'm single you know it's like a, a disease um that that but that's something that i think even the peruvian mormons don't really um don't criticize about anglo mormonism because they 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 know that they feel deep down that yes i should i do need to get married and i should get married but the other areas like you said where there is some credit where there is definite criticism and where i think most peruvian mormons would not shy away from criticizing anglo mormons is the kick out at 18 rule that they would say like you kick your kids out of the house at, at age 18 or way too young um they don't agree with that a lot of them don't agree with the change of the mission age the missionary age going down to 18 because of that reason um that like anglo mormons they grow up with the idea that you know regardless of whether you're on a mission or not i'm definitely going to be leaving home at 18 and um a lot of latin american mormons um definitely don't grow up with that idea and so it's the the separation of um of of, of the you know the 18 year old leaving the family they, they describe it as like a they say they'll use words like very um visceral words to describe that separation like a descaramiento or like you know we're tearing apart the the family by doing that um because they have a very conglomerative idea of family like you just add on and in peru they literally add on another a second story third story fourth story to their house and part of one of my one of my articles i published i actually took a picture of a, of a doorbell which had six there were six doorbells on the door and one for each floor and they all have the same last name because it's just one you know all the siblings they live together and they have their own kids they have their own spouses and then it just grows and grows and grows into a big complex um and i it was interesting to watch that how that worked in the suburbs of of utah because they're not allowed you know due to zoning restrictions to actually do that <laughs> but uh they kind of do it anyway just based on proximity and all living in the same neighborhood but yeah that's uh some of the things uh, another one of the, I mean, the most famous difference that Peruvians love to tell me about, even though they know that I've been married to a Peruvian for years, they they still get the sense that um, marriage means something different to me than it does to them. Um, because, you know, famously, when you marry a, a Latin American person, you, you marry, it's like two families uniting, it's not just two individuals, right? it's the union of two families and so the feelings of the two individuals are secondary to the compatibility of these two sides these two families right and that that um most uh <laughs> in the experience of my in-laws um who they've had a lot of bad experiences with uh with peruvians marrying um anglos and it most that 
deals with the tension of the Anglo spouse not really understanding that by marrying a Peruvian, he or she is really marrying that Peruvian's entire family. Mm-hmm. And so that's, nobody's really prepared for that from the Anglo perspective. Yeah. So you talk about um, uh, the particular familia you're, that you look at as one that's under Jacoba, the sort of matriarch of over a hundred people, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and it's also a fluid one that's kind of continually growing. And uh, one of the things that you mention is the role of food and drink in uh, the process of sort of kin making. Can you tell us a little bit about what that what that process looked like? Yeah, so that's uh, something that I didn't really get to focus on that much in this article, but um, the um, it's uh, I guess the anthropological term is uh, commensality. So it's it's the creation. It's where you know it's a it's a literal. Um, it it gets down to the to what they believe it literally makes them related in certain communities, and so there's certain communities in the Andes, like in Ecuador, um, where people are actually able to um, verbalize this in the in a similar way that we would verbalize. Oh, what what makes you really related to your father, for example? And we would get down to the point where well, we share the same DNA, like. He handed, you know, we get the chromosomes, that's 23. And um, if you have that conversation with someone from one of the more um, traditional communities in the Andes, they would say, oh, because we have eaten together for so long that we are literally made of the same food. And if you think about it scientifically, that makes sense, right? Like, you know, we, we tend to give primacy to DNA as our favorite acid, our favorite amino acid, right? But like, you know, we if you share enough of the same amino acids with somebody, you really literally are made of the same stuff. And so you're just as the relationship is just as real. It's not it's not fictive. And so how that plays out though in Peruvian Mormonism is it's um just one example. Like you have to have the you have to have the correct paste and food to really be part of. So my particular family that I'm a part of, um, my daughters, because of the way that we've lived internationally, my daughters have been kind of estranged from the greater, what we, I guess what we would call extended family that they're a part of, right? And so during my fieldwork time, we became part of the family more than ever. And so um, my daughters were exposed to some foods that they um, that they hadn't really been expected to or forced to try before, but, um, it was almost like a test of their Peruvianness and of their really real membership of the family, whether or not they liked certain foods. One of them was, is called panetone. So I know panetone is like becoming popular now in American supermarkets, like Trader Joe's, I think has panetone now, but it's, uh, but in Peru, panetone is Christmas. Like you do know how Christmas. It was a big so, Italian thing too. That's where I yeah, what is, yeah. it too. So yeah, so yeah, that's funny. Well, it, it comes from Italy, right? The the uh, the recipe in Peru. And Peru's yeah. It's, so food is just really important in Peru, and one of the ingredients of food that's important is foreignness. <laughs> so if it's not foreign to Peruvians, then it 
then it's like it doesn't end up being part of the cuisine <laughs> and so um so panophone is like really important and my daughters don't like it and so they were really it was it was a little bit of a problem for some of their their aunts who would like just like what why how how could you teach your kids to not like panato really you know what is what's the problem here and it took me like a long time to to get a taste for it because it's a it's an acquired taste but the those things like acquiring the taste the correct the correct tastes and once you have acquired them right then it's almost like you, you've built yourself into the family. You're you're accepted and you belong. And it's important through through the food, the foods that you like, and just also just living in enough proximity to share food on a very frequent basis. It is really important to the fam- to what I call la familia, right? And it's um if you don't do that often enough, then you just, you, your kinship can be lost. Um, and so, yeah, that's food and also day and drink, you know, by drink, drink is interesting with Mormonism because, um, you know, because of the, the no alcohol, uh, prohibition. And so drink becomes for Peruvian Mormonism, it becomes a specific soft drink called Inca Cola, which is expresses your Peruvianness because Peru has its own cola. It's very proud of that. And um it also but it also goes back to some more ancestral um carryovers from like from Catholicism, right? And so Cat Indian Catholicism has uh, a lot of what's called ritual drunkenness where where you know getting drunk together and you know imbibing the corn beer you know, that the came from the earth and urinating it into the same earth where the corn came from. It, it really is part of like kinship with the earth and becoming, you know, that sort of cycle. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that still in, in Peruvian Mormonism with, with Inca Cola, but that's kind of like more esoteric theory that I have. <laughs> So what are some of the larger implications of the study that you've done in, in this article for, for Mormon studies or for kinship studies? What what big contributions do you think that it makes? Um see, I think it so for Mormon studies, I think the contribution that it could make is to get people to question to the point of possibly changing the policy in the temple that you can only get sealed to your spouse and your kids. I would really like to see that change. And I haven't seen a, a call for that because I don't think people realize, um, like even, a, you know, I follow a lot of feminist uh, writings in Mormonism, like Exponent 2 and things like that. And I just don't, pe- I think people, it's so unquestioned that people don't realize how damaging it is to um, uh, single mothers. And I know, we know, like with the research showing that I think the majority of Mormons, at least in a lot of places, are single. And it just makes it so they're constantly feeling guilty, right? About, you know, or getting married for the wrong reasons, even um, just so they can get sealed to their own, to their own children, right? And so that's one impact I would like to make. I mean, I don't pretend that. 
anything I write is going to make a big impact, but that would be a good one. Another, so for anthropology, um, I think the impact I like to make in anthropology is, um, because the anthropo, so first of all, the anthropology of Christianity at all is very new. And the reason why is because it's not seen as, because anthropology up until very recently, like maybe the 1990s, is, um, has been as a real bias toward what is exotic, what is considered exotic to white people. And so, um, you know, Mormonism, Christianity wasn't considered exotic enough because it's, it's, it's us, right? We, we are the anthropologists and we are like, you know, Judeo-Christian background. And so we, if, if we go outside, we would go to the jungles of Peru and we find people who are already Christianized that, that ruins them. They're, they're ruined for us. Like we want to find the, the original people who were, haven't been influenced from outsiders, you know? So there was that myth that there, that those, that such a people actually existed. Right. And that we were going to discover them and describe them and salvage their language before it's lost. Um, so the whole, so anthropologists avoided studying Christians, right? And so that idea that, hey, you know, Christians, Mormons, well, we're, we're pretty interesting. And uh, <laughs> studying us can really uh, make you think about why you why you think you're related to the people you think you're related to in a different way. So that's hopefully the impact that I, I could make there. Well, and it also just complicates the study of what we think Mormonism is. And it's, and it's one of the fascinating things about these sort of um, both what, what the kind of close ethnographic work that you're doing and work not on white Anglo North Americans really helps to denaturalize, you know, the, these concepts and see the way that Mormonism is, is expressed in these different contexts. So Jason, I, I want to thank you for your work. It's been such a, it was such a great article and it was so fascinating to get to talk to you about that work today and uh, uh, really, really glad to, to get to know more about this project. Thank you. So we hope that our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and have learned something new. If you'd like to learn more, check out Jason Palmer, Tiny Papers, Peruvian Mormon Substances of Relatedness in the winter 2023 issue of Dialogue and explore other resources on this topic there. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. We hope that you'll tune in for future episodes of our podcast. Please subscribe and rate our show, and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.